0: Welcome everybody to episode 46 of the Football United vs Soccer City podcast. I would like to sincerely thank all the interviewees, listeners and the soccer public of the Illawarra, Australia and the world who download this podcast. Additionally, I'd like to say thank you to the people who contribute, comment and reminisce on the social media pages. It is one of these social media posts that allowed me to complete this interview so please keep interacting online. Stuart McLaren is our interviewee in episode 46. In this expansive interview, Stuart talks about a wide range of subjects which relate to his footballing journey across the world. Stuart has been involved in the game for over four decades and has tasted all aspects to the game as a player and as a coach at grassroots, representative and professional levels. The interview is compelling, as Stewart is honest and thinks about the game deeply. Australian and Scottish football are fortunate to have benefited from his immense contributions. Although not a complete story, as he has so much more to give, I learnt a great deal from listening to the man, and it is an absolute pleasure to have recorded this interview. My sincere thanks go out to Stuart and his family for giving up his time for this interview. And thank you to Daniel Hastings, who originally linked Stuart to a Facebook post. This post allowed me to reach out to Stuart, and for that I am grateful. Please note, as this was recorded via a phone call, the sound quality is not where I would like it to be. So for this infraction, I apologise. Please enjoy this episode. Welcome everybody to the Football United vs Soccer City podcast. I'm here in my uh, studio or, or study in Coromel in New South Wales, Australia. And on the other end of the line, I have an extremely special guest in Stuart McLaren, and he's over in the United Kingdom. Stuart, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Travis. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm not quite in my studio. I'm just sat in my uh, in my living room. So, but I'm comfortable and, and delighted to be here to chat to you.
0: Straight away say I'm sincerely thankful for you uh, for doing this interview and, and appreciate your time and, and your family's time. So um, uh, first and foremost, uh, a lot of the uh, Illawarra listeners would know you from the Wolves. And and other people um, listening in the state will know you from different stints in the NSL that we'll get to. But you were born in Scotland in 1975. Uh, where in Scotland were you born?
1: Born in the Southern General Hospital in in Govan, so in the in the shadows of Ibrook Stadium. Um, so no <laughs> surprise that uh, my fam, most of my family, and 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 indeed myself, sort of grew up as as Ranger supporters. So so that's not been without its challenges in recent times, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, born in Glasgow uh, and lived in Partick, and then moved sort of down south, if you like, slightly to to a place called Ardrossan, okay. down in down in Ayrshire. Um, yeah, and, and you know that was sort of just a couple of years before uh, family decided it was the best move to to emigrate to Australia.
0: And what were your what were your first memories of football in Scotland? I've
1: only really got one or two because we moved to Australia when I was five. Okay. Um, but I distinctly remember, though, my, my uncle and, and my dad played in the same same amateur team. You know, the good level of amateur football my, my dad played within Scotland. Uh, and I remember my older cousin myself being taken to one of the games, and you know, just sort of having a kickabout behind the goals, and and as you do with young kids, you know, getting sat down in, in the social club or something afterwards, <laughs> and and being given a can of soft drink and a packet of crisps while uh, while the men socialised and did what they did. So. so there was that and, and you know, just I guess that, that really early formative um, exposure to the game and, and looking up to people, you know, like your dad and your uncle and the other guys in the team as almost your idols at that point without that understanding of the bigger world of professional football and everything. But, yeah, just really falling in love with the game.
0: Excellent. So you were saying that at five years old, your family immigrated out to Australia. Where did you end up moving to?
1: We moved to Brisbane. I think my mum and dad have spoken about it, you know, considered South Africa and then I think the original plan when going to Australia was either Melbourne or Sydney Uh, but it turned out that one of my dad's uh, close friends, one of his workmates um, was residing in Brisbane so I thought, well, maybe better to go somewhere where at least we know somebody Uh, and and it turned out to be a terrific move so I immigrated to Brisbane at the the back end of uh, 1980 and I never looked back my mum and dad still I live in Brisbane. Now. I've lived in various places in Queensland, but they live in Brisbane again now and uh and absolutely love the lifestyle and and I've got so much to be thankful for that they made uh you know what what was a, an absolutely enormous decision to to leave the families behind especially in that era, you know, it's not as it is now in terms of international travel yeah. and the wonders of technology and Skype and everything, you know, moving Literally to the other side of the world was was such an enormous step, and after you know, to thank them for for doing that.
0: And for yourself, do you recall, as a five-year-old, although very young, that it was a, a hard move on yourself? That you had a couple of friends and and like you said, family that you were moving away from.
1: Not so much the family and friends aspect from from my perspective, Travis. No, not at all. Um, you know, there probably was leaving the airport you know some tears with the family but probably a little bit too young to totally comprehend you know how big it was and what yeah. we were actually doing but uh, you have some distinct memories of of stepping off the plane you know as I say coming summertime in Brisbane and you know again n- none of these uh, connected walkways right into the air conditioning terminal <laughs> it was right off the, the plane steps onto the tarmac in, you know 30 degrees and probably 80% humidity and and wearing uh, clothes coming out of the UK, witness so probably given that time some brown cords and <laughs> and, uh, and a woollen jumper. So uh, yeah, that that was a noticeable difference straight away.
0: And was it straight away that you then got into junior football in the in the Brisbane suburbs?
1: Yeah, settled into to life in Brisbane very early. Like, you know, my again, you know, knowing what you know now as an adult and, and realizing all the things that they would have had to contend with. I've got nothing but admiration for my parents. So, as I say, settled into to life in Brisbane. They bought a house. My dad got work. Uh, we got into school very quickly. And, and, you know, before long, settled into to playing with uh, the Marundu Soccer Club in the kind of Bayside area in Brisbane. And, um, as I say, just never looked back. You know, it was uh, a fairly smooth transition for a young kid um, to make. And, and obviously, had had that love of football and it was only ever fostered from that moment on.
0: And you additionally played at uh, Mount Gravatt Soccer Club and Kapalaba Soccer Club in those early to mid-80s. Uh, what do you recall of of those days of junior football in terms of your position or coaches or and or teammates?
1: Just uh, having fun. You know, that's the way that it should be. Um, you know, coaches from that time, certainly when I was at Kapalaba, was uh, a gent called Neil Catchpole, who him um, and his brothers were quite prominent in the in the f- kind of football scene in Brisbane yep. at that time. Uh, and and his son was, was in the the side with us, and I just remember it being you know great fun, you know playing alongside the boys. Couldn't wait to get to training each night. Loved the games on the weekend, you know. We we, um, we just had a really good time, and it's now that I'm on the other side of things and involved in coaching and coach education and it's trying to to make sure that you know people understand what coaching is when when you're looking after you know a, a children's team or a grassroots team with, with young players it's just about trying to make it enjoyable you know use the game to to make them fall in love with football and certainly if they can learn skills and improve along the way then that's um, then that's terrific so so those were my memories from, from playing at Mount Gravatt and Capalaba in the early days um and just really at the very back end of it before we moved up into to central queensland Um, maybe that first taste of actually realising that that maybe, you know, you could be quite good at it because there was a a regional selection, so the Brisbane South uh, squads, and and started to go to one or two training sessions for that. Um, As I say, in sort of 1987, my dad's work had taken him away up at the central Queensland and and the family moved up up, uh, to Biloela.
0: And and for yourself... um did you when you started playing football did you have that sort of deep passion for the game that you just couldn't wait to to play with friends go to training play games on weekends
1: yeah i look back and i think that there was probably some really fortunate um, circumstances that i found myself in that that you know as i said it right from you know watching my dad play as a 5 year old in, in amateur football in scotland and then you know, joining to junior football clubs uh, in, in Brisbane in the good environment that they each had. But also in my local neighbourhood, we, we had a, a couple of other, um, you know, migrants from from England, so a couple of English families who had boys about the same age. Yep.
2: Um,
1: and definitely one of them, I know, a guy that I keep in contact with a little bit now, Simon Graham, he was a close pal. And, and that's all we did we, was, you know, we played football, he was a big man United fan, you know, we would get guys together and go and play down the park. So, you know, again now I understand, you know, how all of that helped me because I was playing against kids that were older than me. So I was always being challenged. Um I was then obviously going and playing with my peers and, and we always had kickabouts at school. Um, even in those days. But we also, you know, <laughs> took part in a lot of other sports. So as you do in Australia, when the cricket was on, everybody's playing cricket. When the <laughs> tennis is on, the tennis rackets come out. And and now understanding about all the things that go into developing a, a talented player, you know, the multi-sport facet definitely um, definitely helped me. But it helped me that I had that element of free play and, and you know, being challenged, as I said, by playing against older boys and, and all of those things. So it was, um, from a football perspective, a really good upbringing. I distinctly remember the 1982 World Cup in Spain, you know, being about seven years old. And my dad telling me that the that the guys who participated in it got paid to play, and from that moment I thought that sounds like uh, a good idea, you know, <laughs> for a career. The only thing I couldn't get my head around was why they only did it every four years. I just thought well, that seems a long time to do without football. So, but uh, but yeah, that, those are my early memories.
0: And and the move to to Rockhampton or Central Queensland there, uh, you said that you you played with. With a club up there, which I'll let you pronounce. Um, how did you how did you find the first couple of years there?
1: You know, it the same. As, it was through my dad's work, so he was involved um, in the construction of power stations, uh, mm. and for a, a period of time, he was working away and, and coming back at weekends and the like. But the travel became too much, so decided as a family to go up to a place called Billawilah, which is just mm. inland a bit from Rockhampton, um, and play for you know a lovely. Family orientated club called Calide United. Who, you know, say I'm pleased to say that I've, I've had various visits back to there throughout time. Still keeping contact with one or two of the people that were involved. In. And again, it was just, you know, such a, a positive environment. It was playing with my mates again. Um, as I say, starting to get that bit of taste that maybe you could be, you'd had a bit of talent because you're getting identified and selected to play in representative squads for Central Queensland and and you know the Queensland Primary Schools team and and things like that. Um, and But the one memory that I do have out of playing for Calide was uh, it was the year that they changed the birth dates from the 1st of January to the 30th of June. Okay. So, you know, half my mates stayed with the age group and, and continued on, and I actually dropped down in age group. And I remember, you know, whether it was the right reaction or the wrong reaction or whatever, I remember just being so upset that I was actually dropping back in age group technically because of my date of birth.
2: Yeah.
1: Because I would not be playing. Um, all the time with my pals. I mean, the way it worked out, um, I think physiologically I developed uh, quite early, so I was able to play against older players. Um, you know, even at the age of 12 and 13, I was playing against boys in in, uh, in Billawilah at 15, 16 years of age. So, so it didn't hamper me too much. But uh, but those are my sort of early memories for there. And then the next kind of job for my dad was um, closer to Rockhampton, so we moved to to Rockhampton.
2: Um, and I played
1: for the the Berserker Soccer Club, which uh, you know has had a, a a couple of guys come out, most notably Josh Rose, obviously yep. a great career, predominantly um, with the Central Coast Mariners. Josh is a, is a Berserker product, yep. um, as is the current FFA Chief Executive Officer James Johnson. Yeah. He he played for Berserker in his very early days, um, and in fact his dad Gary was uh, a huge influence on my my um, football and experience as a teenager you know we, I first came across Gary probably as a 12 13 year old player uh, with Central Queensland and then Queensland representative sides uh, and him and my dad went on to, to coach the senior side at, at Bersica and, and Gary gave me the opportunity to play you know the highest level of men's football that was available at the time the CQ league yep. you know as, as a 15 year old kid You know, and I, so I look back on it now and I thought that it takes you know a certain coach to have a certain amount of courage to be able to do that for one but, but in terms of a development coach Gary's insight was terrific and his support was, was invaluable to me um in those sort of three four years that I spent in Rockhampton.
0: And what position uh in, in your junior football were you predominantly playing?
1: And again this is the, I think something for me that, that's helped uh to, to a large extent probably where I am now in terms of my what I hope I think is, is a reasonable level of understanding of the game i played a number of positions yep. you know i i would play you know from my time at Kapalabar and and uh, mount davat in brisbane as a 7 8 9 year old you know as a midfield player i remember going to to Biller Wheeler and, and ended up um playing at the as a centre half or almost a sweeper uh, but as i went up in the age group, sometimes i would be played as a striker uh, and the same thing when i went to rockhampton you know, I, I, I predominantly probably played at the back um, in part because I would, I, would, I would like to think I was seen as a, a player who was competitive, who, who loved the, the physical aspect and, and challenging for yeah. the ball and things. Um, but, I, but I played in, in a number of different positions. So I think that helped overall with my football development. I think it helped overall my understanding now, you know, as, as a coach and a coach educator. So it was probably only latterly when I went to the Australian Institute of Sport, you know, and picked up a scholarship there when I was uh, sort of 16 coming 17. Um, that started to specialise really as a, as a centre half um, and occasionally played as a centre forward as well.
0: And, and that transition there from, from the local club and, and representative teams to the Australian Institute of Sport, how did that come about and, and what were you feeling at that age of, of this transition and, and your ascendancy into you know, the higher levels?
1: First and foremost, what, a, what a, an absolutely wonderful opportunity you know that was was presented to me. Uh, as I say, I'd played in, in Queensland representative sides, you know, alongside Clint Bolton um, as well, another another prominent uh, Queensland lad who's going gone on had a terrific career and he's prominent in the media now in, in Australia. Yeah. Um, and we, we played national championships uh, predominantly from from that. Ron Smith had selected a squad. Uh, to, to take up, you know, essentially a two-year scholarship program starting in the beginning of
0: 1992.
1: I, I, from from what my memory is, I wasn't identified uh, to be a scholarship holder directly from the national championships, but yep. through a program that, that Gary um, and another coach called Richard Evans, who we'll come to shortly, yep. um, had implemented in Rockhampton, uh, there was a, a, an opportunity for a couple of Rocky lads to go down and have a, a week's training, a week's trial at the, at the Institute of Sports. So I did that at the back end of 1991. Yep. Um, and off the back of that week, uh, Ron Smith and, and Steve O'Connor decided to offer me the scholarship. So, you know, I remember that sitting in, in Ron's office and, and being spoken to about it. I remember going away and, and putting the 40 cents in the payphone. <laughs> you know, obviously going back up to mobile phone days. <laughs> And phoning home, you know, as a 16-year-old kid to, you know, in, in the December of, of 91 to, to tell my mum that I was leaving home. Um, and her question obviously was, did she have a say in the matter? And, and I said, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going to go away and and, uh, and learn to be a footballer. Uh, you know, her obvious thing was, well, what about your education? And I said, well, so we're still going to school. And I think that, you know, the age that I was, the young player, I just had that terrific opportunity to go and I make myself into a pro footballer and that at a later date if, if education needed to be picked up on then I could always pick that back up. So so that's what happened. So and I think something like the second or the third of January I hopped on a plane from Rockhampton and, and, and never looked back.
0: I guess in, in recent times there's been a lot of discussion in the media here, in the football media, about the Australian Institute of Sport and its demise and, and whether that's right or wrong. And and for you, your time there, can you give us an indication of what you learnt? Sort of the day-to-day sort of routines that you you picked up, and and people like you, people like Ron Smith and Steve O'Connor, they've had a tremendous impact on the sport in Australia, haven't they?
1: Absolutely. You know, I think uh, you know there's a number of people obviously that have made invaluable contributions but but Ron and and Steve in particular have to be high up on that list you know I, I can't speak highly enough of uh, the environment that they created the support that they gave us uh and and you know not just from a purely footballing perspective but you're talking about young adults who yeah. are you know transitioning almost from from being children and kids and living at home to that first little taste of having a bit of responsibility and living away from home and everything else like that. So, you know, the, the programme itself for myself and, and, and my cohort, you know, which included a large percentage of that that golden generation. You know, you're talking about Mark Viduka, Joseph Skoko, Craig Moore, as okay. mentioned, Clint Bolton, Mark Rubin. you know, a number of guys that, that if they didn't feature with the Socceroos in those World Cups, certainly had, um, you know, good careers. And the old NSL and, and the A League and and, and per, perhaps abroad as well. So it was a, it was a terrific group for for us to be a part of. You know the environment. Say that Ron and Steve had created there was was everything that a young footballer could ever look for. You know it was it was the best of times and the worst of times for me as well because you know as soon as I got there I thought wow you know this is everything that I expected. You know a professional approach to be. Uh, but at the same time I unfortunately um, suffered quite a serious injury after only about three months so I had had bilateral stress fractures of my fifth lumbar vertebrae Um, and that kept me me out of football from kind of the, the March or April in that first year right through until the January of the following year so I missed about nine months which was awful to go through at the time but Looking back, it, it perhaps helped me, um, you know, go through some things and and develop a certain, you know, resilience and and you know and everything else that, that that you hope to to try and have as you go through your career. But but our weekly routine or daily routine, even there, would be um, obviously training sessions in the afternoon, or the evening after school um, as a squad, yep. Monday through to Friday. Um, A couple of mornings a week, you know, up at six o'clock in the morning to go and uh, get into the gym or some other sort of form of strength and conditioning training. Um, And then periodically throughout the week, we'd come together, you know, either in in, uh, small groups or even just as ones and twos um, and work on individual aspects, you know, so so an all encompassing programme. Uh, we we also played as a squad in the National Youth League at that time. Yeah, that's right. Uh, in the Northern Section, we played against a lot of the NSL clubs, youth sides from from around the Sydney, Newcastle, Wollongong area and whatnot. And then in in the off season, Ron um, also managed to get us involved uh, in playing in the the kind of men's competition in the Canberra area. So again, as a group of sort of 16, 17 coming 18-year-old kids to play against men, you know, even at that level, okay, it wasn't wasn't uh, the highest, but at the same time, it certainly challenged us playing against men. Um, and a lot of the things that probably currently, certainly here in the UK, you look for when you loan players out to clubs in the lower division. Um, so terrific environment, as I say. can't speak high enough of the input that, that, that Ron uh, and Steve Davis, as well as all the support staff, you know, from sports science and medicine and everything else like that, um it was terrific and, and you know, guys with that much higher profile than me speak so highly of the program. Um and it, and it's a real travesty. I think that, that it's not still existing in some form um within Australia because it, it was one of if not the best sort of finishing schools at that time and, and I think the evidence is quite clear uh with the results of, of the national teams as I say that, that the Skokos and Vidukas and Aloises and Moors and the like uh, and the impact they had with the Socceroos in that year.
0: Yeah, definitely. So for you, you you had your, your two years there at the AIS, and then what transpired after finishing there? So,
1: yeah, this is the the interesting thing for me. So I mentioned Richard Evans before. So yep. he was uh, a coach in Rockhampton during my time there. Uh, and him and Gary Johnson had, had set up a program called the Rockhampton Soccer Academy where the best uh, or most talented kids from the area came together once or twice a week, you know, irrespective of whatever club team they played for. And trained as a group, and again it was a bit more of that individual focus. So Richard um, was back living in Wollongong. I know he spent some time pre- living previous uh, there. And and during my my sort of you know, my time at the AIS was coming to a close, and look at what my exit strategy was going to be. Um, Richard thankfully sort of helped set up. Uh, a trial or a training stint with the Wolves, um, and, and luckily I guess from my perspective, off the back of that, and, and perhaps what they maybe knew of, of what I'd done at the AIS and, and yeah. how I'd been performing there, uh, Dave Ratcliffe offered me a, a, a contract to sign with the Wolves, um, and at that point, I, I couldn't have been happier because, you know, whilst the AIS had, you know, some of the most talented kids from that sort of 16, 17-year-old bracket, it was never a certainty that all of them would go on to have opportunities um, as pro footballers, you know, and, and that was drummed into us as well, that it wasn't an automatic uh, situation, it wasn't a foregone conclusion, that just because you were at AIS, you would go on to things, you know, you had to put the work in. So so to reach that stage and actually be offered a, a contract by an NSL club was, um, was, you know, was I just remember being, being ecstatic at that moment in time.
0: And for yourself, what were your first impressions of Wollongong City when you arrived there? It was a massive step up
1: for me, as I said. But you know, I played a bit of men's football even as a 15-year-old in Rockhampton and, and a little bit with, during the IS. But to go into a, a, an NSL team, and, and at that point a reasonably successful team, you know, guys that had played in finals football and, and some that had played for the national team, the likes you know, Mick O'Shea and... Martin Burke, Martin Horsley, all of these guys. You know, I just remember the training being extremely intense and really competitive. Um, But at the same time, you know, perhaps even in a sense surprising myself that that I felt relatively comfortable, you know, as a young kid going into there. Uh, You know, some of the people that I met at the club who made me feel so welcome, um, in particular, Brian Hastings, who was, who was the yep. chairman at that time, and and, uh, and his family, you know, his two boys were about my age and, and developed a really good friendship and, and still call them good friends to this day. Uh, you know, the club being so welcoming. Um, so uh, that was my, my early impressions. At the same time, you know, early on, I had a taste of the first team yep. and then for different reasons came away from it. Uh, and so it became a bit a bit challenging for me, you know, from a football perspective, but also from a, a mentality perspective, really about okay, well, how how do I um, get myself back into the reckoning um, at this club? But but you know, was, was uh, relishing the opportunity really when I first signed for the Wolves.
0: And what about David Ratcliffe as a coach or slash manager? How how did you find David?
1: I found him very honest and forthright. Yeah. Um, that that was the first. Um, you know, I, I distinctly remember attending a, a function very early uh, in my career and talking to Tony Pizzano, yep. um, who, who wasn't with the club obviously had been previously, uh, and somebody who knew David very well. And, and he gave me a good bit of advice. You know, in terms of listen, you know, uh, David, somebody who uh, you know really needs to know that he can trust you on the pitch. But once he has that, then he'll he'll back you for for a long time. So. Um, yeah, David. David was what he was, you know, given his upbringing and his, and his background. Uh, you know, I still have a vision of in my head of, of him playing for the national team at Hampden Park in the in the playoffs, the '86 World Cup, and kicking Kenny Douglas up in the air. You know, one of the game's absolute legends, and, and Kenny having a bit to say to him, and and, and David Ratcliffe being you know not fussed in the slightest. So I think that tells you everything about about David's character. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, he, he, was, he was a good, honest, straightforward guy. Um, and, and, you know, whilst I would like to have uh, played a lot more games, more of that was, was down to, you know, how I reacted. or didn't quite react uh, as a young player at that time, uh, more so than it was to do with anything that David did. But, uh, you know, I can't be uh, any more thankful for the appreciation, you know, that, 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 or, the, or, or appreciative of the, the opportunity that he gave me to go into senior men's football at that time.
0: And for yourself, uh, how did you find the transition to um, Wollongong itself and uh, uh, living in uh, a beachside city like that?
1: I absolutely love the the city. Um, and, and you know, <laughs> if the planet's aligned for different reasons, we'd have absolutely no complaints. Uh, moving back to the otherwise. I just think it's a, such a beautiful place and a lovely lifestyle. Um, I must admit, as, as a young kid uh, coming out of what was a kind of, I guess, semi-protected environment. The AIS, It took me a little while to understand what was required of me. Yeah. Uh, and growing up as a person and taking that responsibility for, you know, finding myself a place to to live, cooking my own meals, making sure that, uh, you know, I, I, I had enough uh, income to, to to pay the bills. Because whilst, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a, a contract there at the Wolves, it was very heavily weighted on on pay as you play. You know, yep. so it was minimum a weekly wage. I really needed to be playing in the first team to, to make sure that I had a, a certain income. So if, when that wasn't the case, I needed to make sure I was able to supplement. So, so I was really playing as a part-time player. So it took me a little while to adjust to that. But sort of by the end of it, by the time I was kind of 20 or 21, um, I felt like I had done that. So so again, you know, from a personal development perspective. Uh, my period at Wollongong was was terrific for me. I, I would I would love surely to have uh, played a lot more games and and be much more successful with the team on the pitch at that time. But um, you know you can't wind back the clock. And, and my experience that I went through there certainly stood me in good stead later
0: on. And in those NSL off seasons, you did uh, spend time in the Illawarra Premier League. And and now that I read your timeline, but now that you've uh, Given the the information about Richard Evans, it's it's no wonder that you then uh, had the the first off season with with Lysart's where he was coaching.
1: It yeah, was well, obviously Richard was also coaching the the world's youth team when I first signed, um, and obviously when you didn't play in the first team, you, you you played in the youth team to get your games up. So um, so experienced a bit with Richard, and then you know I think I look back on it now, it was almost because the. The off-season was so long in the in the NSL as it is now with the A-League. It was a great opportunity to go almost out on loan and, and, and get some more experience of playing men's football. So it was only natural for me yeah, to, to go and play under Richard um, at Lysart. And uh, it was you know again, lucky enough to, to have that sheer enjoyment of playing alongside a few mates. So Daniel played particularly in the first team. Paul was a wee bit too young, uh, the yeah. Hastings brothers. Uh, and, and a few other guys, you know, really enjoyed the experience. Um, playing there Uh, and then the second off season uh, Nats Vardereff who obviously was the the goalie coach at the the Wolves that was um, taking on the the Balgani first team
2: Um,
1: and it felt like Nats was somebody who who seemed to have a reasonably high opinion of me at that time He, he really wanted me to go and play for him and his club and uh, and again, I enjoyed that, both myself and Matty Horsley played a, a season there, um, so that was great as well, you know, to, to, to mix with, with them and, and work on the natch for a little while and actually played up front in that period and, and, and scored a few goals.
0: Yeah, that's where uh, uh, I don't, I haven't told you before, but I'm a I'm a Bowgownie Ranger and played there for 20 years and I think it was my... Second uh, se- senior senior year in football, and and I, I do recall you as more of an attacking player, and and you and Matt coming back that year. So um, it was pretty uh, pretty good for the Illawarra Premier League clubs to have uh, NSL stars come back, and sort of gave us a, a bit of uh, interest and and aspirations to to do better as well.
1: Yeah, no, great, and look, I, I don't think it's. Um... You know, any secret I won't be the first one to to say about that, that. Illawarra Premier League was also, you know, a good breeding ground for talent as well. You know, <laughs> and quite clearly playing against uh, the Fern Hills squad at that time, um, and people talking quite highly of a of a young Scott Chipperfield, and obviously yeah. we're all well aware of what Scott has gone to achieve in the game as well. So, so terrific um, breeding ground. I say I've only got. You know, really positive memories uh, of my time in, in the LOR, be it Ballysacks or or Balgowney or um, or the Wolves. You know, would love, as I say, to have uh, played more games uh, for the first team and and gone on to be a part of the success, perhaps that that obviously experienced when when Nick Dorokopoulos had the side, but um, that didn't transpire for different reasons, mostly my own doing. Uh, but, but I've got no regrets and, and as I say I always look back on my time there with um, with fond memories
0: So how, how did it end? Uh, you were under Bertie Mariani and then um, you finished up your time there, was that just a mutual decision between the club and, and yourself?
1: Yeah look it was one of those things that when, when Bertie came on uh, again, I think he was somebody that that was uh, looking for me to be, um, you know, to really kind of break through more. You know, I probably played 20 or 30 games, I think, uh, in total under under David across a couple of sort of season and a half or two seasons. Um, and when Bertie took over, I think he was looking at me as a, a kind of 19 coming 20 year old kid ready to to really burst on the scene and 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 uh, and make that breakthrough properly. So he did give me some opportunities. Um, you know, I look back on things, and, and in part, uh, very small part, because of Bertie's approach, but largely because of what I, I did and didn't know uh, about what I, I should be doing, and taking the personal responsibility. You know, uh, in terms of how I should be playing, how I should be preparing, making myself as fit as I possibly could be. I didn't have the impact, I guess, that, that Bertie wanted, and obviously his reign was relatively short. Um, and when Nick, Thiel, when Nick Theo came in, he obviously had. Uh, you know certain strong ideas, and, and early on in the piece, um, I put myself out on loan to the the, the kind of uh, Wollongong Macedonia team that was playing yeah. in the kind of New South Wales state. Um, so went there with Glenn Fontana was coaching the side, um, and, and Stuart Beattie was kind of part playing, but but mostly helping with the coaching side of things, and, and that was really the kind of last few months that I spent in Wollongong. You know, I think at that time. Um, it became clear that, that probably there wasn't going to be a future for me at the Worlds with Nick, um, and also at the same time I'd kind of expressed an interest, that maybe it was best for me to go and try and have that, um, have that, you know, that pursuit of uh, of a career in Scotland. You know, it was obviously something because of my background that I'd always wanted to try and do. Um, you know the the career plan in my head at 17, 18 was to go and try and establish yourself and do do well in the NSL uh, before going on to to a career in Scotland. Um, didn't do quite as well in the NSL as I'd like, but at the same time I thought maybe there's enough experience and I was of the right age to to go and and explore some opportunities in Scotland. So so Stuart was um, was really helpful with that, obviously with his wealth of contacts here in Scotland. Yeah. He put me in that with a, with a number of managers, and, and as I say, it just sort of think became a, a bit of an, a mutual agreement between myself and, and the Wolves at the time that, that maybe it was best if I um, if I sort of was released and, and moved on.
0: So in in '96, you then uh, travelled across to Scotland, and and like you said, through through the help of Stuart Beattie, you then uh, took on a few trials and, and ended up at Sterling Albion FC.
1: That's right. Yeah, I've with a couple of clubs, um, Saint Mirren being one, uh, and it's just it's funny how things transpire because uh, uh, I didn't have any direct feedback from them after being in for a week or so, uh, and one of our Stuart's other contacts um, got on the phone from another club and invited me in, so I decided not to go back into Saint Mirren. But the, the assistant manager at St. Mirren at the time was Kenny McDowell, yep. whose brother. Gary McDowell obviously played a good bit of NSL and with Heidelberg and the likes and played for the Socceroos. He uh, was the assistant coach at the Strikers, Brisbane Strikers, when I eventually signed for them. And when I spoke about it, he said, oh yeah, Kenny and, uh, and the manager at the time, Jimmy Bowen, actually quite liked you and, and might have offered you an opportunity had you stayed on and trained for a bit longer. So <laughs> it didn't transpire there. But I also went to, to Dundee United, um, you know, being Stuart's old club and, and one of his... Uh, contacts Billy Cookwood was the manager at the time and I distinctly remember um you know kind of at the end of the trial period thinking I'd done okay. I played for the reserve team as a striker, scored a couple of goals in a tournament we played down in New York, you know, against uh, the reserve teams of, of Sheffield Wednesday and I think it was Notts Forest and Tottenham actually. Um and thinking that might be a chance here. Uh, the reserve team coach spoke to me and, and and said that he'd be happy for me to come to the club And I I still think to this day, I'd love to have the conversation with Billy, but I sat down in the office with him and and he asked me what I was looking for. And I said, I'm just looking for a start. Now, in my mind, the start was, to start my career, um, you know, and and earn my way up uh, in Dundee United, I think at the time, we're in the the second tier of Scottish football. And I think he understood it, that I was looking to start in his first team, you know, as (laughs) as a starting 11 player. And it wasn't until years later I thought, I wonder if that's absolutely interpretive. Because, it, it, you know, his words to me were he had better at the club at that time, which I've no doubt in the first team he absolutely did. Um, and and he said that, you know, there wouldn't be a, a chance for me at Dundee United, but he, he put me in contact with Ray Stewart, who was the assistant manager at Stirling Albion. Um, and I went and trained there for, for a couple of weeks and, and luckily enough, uh, the manager, Kevin Drinko, Offered me a chance to um, to play there. And uh, Stirling at the time were playing in the second tier, the championship. the championship, yep. I saw it, uh, the championship in, oh, was known as, the first division, at that time in Scotland. And um, and had you know two two really enjoyable years um, at, at the club and, and, and met some good people again and, and had some relative success uh, to a point. Um, and, but unfortunately, at the end of the second year, the, the club was relegated. Um, and they were one of those clubs that that had gone from being uh, oh, having a part-time playing staff to to being full-time for the two years that were that were in the first division. Um, but unfortunately, relegation kind of forced the club to go back to to part-time football, um, and the majority of the squad had their their contracts um, not renewed. Uh, and obviously, I was one of those players. So. So that was my kind of two-year journey. Um, in Scotland, you know, a few highs. I said scoring um, goals against Partick Thistle um, at Fir Hill. That seemed to be my happy hunting ground. You know, we had cup games against Aberdeen. Uh, we actually knocked Co Marmock, who were a Premier League oh, team wow. at the time. Out of the, the Scottish League Cup, we won 6-2 on that occasion, which was uh, which was crazy. Um, and actually playing against Dundee United in successive seasons in, in cup competitions as well. So, so a good period, um, interesting period uh, at the time, but, uh, but also, you know, interesting the way things transpired after that.
0: And was it that sort of initial start there, and even during that that stint, was it a bit of a pinch-me moment that you, with your heritage and, and wanting to, I guess, play NSL, and you did that, and then you go over and, and become a professional, was it, was it a bit of a pinch-me moment that it was surreal in a sense that, Although you'd worked very hard to to get where you were, that geez, I, I'm playing in Scotland professionally.
1: There was an element of that. There was an element of that. Um, you know, I, I think. You know, at the same time, you know, now when you reflect back on things, uh, as a as a young guy living away from home, I didn't have quite the the direction that 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 might have helped me achieve a little bit more. Yep. But but also, you know also the, the first one to hold my hand up and say, you know, personally, I should have made a lot more of the opportunities that I had. So so at that point in the two years, it took me a little while to get there. Probably the first six months I was only on a kind of part time contract, but I went in training full time. Um and then I earned the full time contract. Um and at that time, you know, we, we would train on a on a Monday evening because we still had two or three part time players. Yep. Train on a Tuesday morning. Uh we Wednesday would be off we were training on a Thursday morning and a Friday sorry a Thursday evening and a Friday morning and then we would play Saturday now I didn't as i say get the direction perhaps um but also didn't take enough responsibility which is probably the larger thing to to go and dedicate myself to do uh, enough additional training you know I, w- I was a young player at that time um who was on the fringe of the first team we would play you know some weeks'd get a little run in the team would come back out'd be on the bench and things and I needed to do more um to really go and make the most of that opportunity because I, I do think had I done a little bit more uh there's a possibility I could have played more regularly and had a bit more success for Stirling. um and, and and as a 21 22 year old uh player uh you know per, perhaps doing some things for a smaller club in in a, in a um you know in a good a good level of football might potentially have led to other things so so it was it was both sides, you know. I was, you know, proud and, and as you say, pinching myself that that I was actually playing as a full-time professional in, in the second tier in Scotland. Um, but at the same time, I look back now and 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 whilst um, I'm quite happy to say that I didn't have the the level of uh, of ability of of a Mark Baduka or potentially a Craig Moore or something like that, I also didn't uh, do certain things to make the most of of whatever uh, talent and ability that I had. So so it was a little bit of um, I guess life lessons in it for me um, and it's stuff that I try and instil in some of the young players that I'm working with now to, to make the most of every opportunity and, and every day and every week that you have in, in football to, to make sure that you make the
0: most of it. Yeah, well, I was going to ask that and you've answered that question in terms of passing on that those life experiences to, to the people that you coach now, uh, especially at that, that age and, and we'll get on to that, but it must be important that They can hear it from yourself and and hear it with authenticity. Yeah, I think there
1: is an element to that. You know, uh, there's a a saying that I like to use quite often, which is, you know, playing and coaching aren't the same thing. (laughs) Um, You know, performing and teaching aren't the same thing. Uh, But at the same time, you know, if, if there is, some first-hand experience that that people have to to be able to convey to to younger players, then then it can be a benefit. But it's it's obviously how you get that across, and that's not to say that that somebody who hasn't, um, you know, been a World Cup winner or somebody that's never played professional football can't also impart these sorts of lessons just because, um, you know, they have the, the same sort yeah. of outlook or the same experience. But, but I do have some first-hand experience, you know, within professional football and aware of some of the pitfalls that. The young players can potentially fall into, um, you know, which which might prevent them from from going on to achieve everything that they they, they should go on to achieve, um, you know. So it's great to be in that position now. I just wish uh, I, I'd had the uh, the old adage of, of an old head on young shoulders. I didn't quite have that at that time, but um, but it's helped shape who I am just now. So so that's all
0: fine. Yeah, definitely. So in in '98, um, were you always going to come back to Australia and 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 your stint at Hong Kong Rangers was just a sort of, I guess, a bit of a transition back to Oz?
1: No, the, the, the initial um, you know, strategy or plan for me was to try and remain in Scotland. Okay. Um, there was one or two clubs that, that were interested, uh, but at that time they were, they were playing again at a division lower than I had been playing in. And it was predominantly part-time football. So I remember going to training a couple of times with Ra. Um I remember a friend of mine getting me back into train at Saint Mirren yep. uh, when Tony Fitzpatrick was there, um, and I was crying out for an opportunity to to, to go there because obviously they were still in in, uh, in the first division at the time. But it didn't transpire. And then um, I was staying with my cousin at the time, uh, and I remember. Uh, didn't have a mobile phone or anything, but but remember coming home and and being given a message that um, Rangers had been on the phone, <laughs> uh, and I I kind of jokingly said uh, what is it Berwick Rangers, and they said no no it's Hong Kong Rangers, and I I, I just yeah obviously shaking my head about how it came about, but um, the gentleman that, that, that you know essentially established the club um, would come back to to Scotland each summer. He would look at the, the list of free transfer players, um, you know, and get in contact with a few and, and offer them the opportunity, you know, if, if he felt they liked the, the look of them. So I went and met him. Um, we had a good discussion about what the potential opportunity would be in Hong Kong. And, and, and I was excited by it, obviously. As I had moved about quite a bit as a, as a young person. Um, so going to, to somewhere else in the world didn't phase me at all. Uh, but the next part was, was probably the strangest experience that I've had in, in professional football. So, you know, whilst he, he said that, you know, he, he liked the sound of, of what I was as a player, he needed to see me in the flesh. And I said, well, that's only understandable. How are we going to do this? He well, tomorrow, come to the public park with your mate and bring a ball. <laughs> and uh, my mate let through a few balls in the air and I headed them back to him. Um, you know, he clipped a couple of balls to me, and I controlled them and, and played them back to him, and, and did a few things like that, and, and I had a couple of, I guess, trying to mimic some some strikes at goal by smashing the ball up against the fence, and it lasted I think for about 15 or 20 minutes. And he went, "No, you, you look fine to me." So I had a, a trial for the Hong Kong Rangers in a public park in Govan, unbelievable places, and and that's how I eventually sealed a, a contract to go and go and play for for Hong Kong Rangers.
0: And how was that experience in Hong Kong? Eye opening to say the least. Um,
1: you know, again I I feel very fortunate that, that the places around the world that, that football has taken me. Um and Hong Kong was another one sort of experience living uh, in Hong Kong. I wasn't on the Hong Kong Island side, I was over in the Kowloon Bay side, so in oh, okay. the new territory. So it was interesting. Um living in amongst uh, you know the Chinese community in there for so one. Uh I was party to some things that, that took place within the game that I still shake my head at now. So I, was, I ended up only being there for about four months or so, and twice within that four-month period, I witnessed uh, two five-all draws. <laughs> now I'll, I'll let the, the listeners, um, you know, make up their own minds about how a five-all draw comes about. We're obviously well aware of uh, some of the practices that, that take place. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, football in those areas, but so that was interesting. Um, and my, my termination, you know, from the club was, was also an eye opener. So uh, I, I, primarily obviously been uh, recruited to play as a as a centre forward. And um, we'd gone there. We, we'd had a kind of mixed start, I guess, to the season. We got to the the semi final uh, of the kind of cup competition. I remember playing at uh, the Hong Kong Stadium, um, which was terrific experience there. Um, but in the league form, we would started a little bit, and uh, and I hadn't managed to score a goal. So so as one of the, the the foreign players recruited to come and um, make an impact, you know, as a centre forward, I, I felt I was playing okay and linking the play up and working hard, etc. But but I wasn't doing uh, what centre forward would do, and that was score goals. So I I, I sensed that there was um, you know some, some unhappiness from from the owners. Uh, fortunately enough, there were some other expats in Hong Kong who had a bit more experience and, and they gave me the things to look out for. So a couple of things transpired and in and, and the end up um I, I called for a meeting with the general manager and and we decided that you know between you know that meeting and, and what he had with the owners that it was best that we you know terminated the contract yep. uh, and, and moved on. So so uh once we'd agreed what the termination uh, payout was going to be um, he was a kind of second-hand car dealer, I think, in, in Hong Kong. So he called me to his <laughs> office, uh, and, and I went expecting, you know, to, to give uh, my bank details or to be given a cheque. Um, but they counted out the, the payout in cash, <laughs> uh, which was very, very, very interesting. Um, and I don't think I've ever been any more nervous uh, of coming out of uh, that office and the short walk to the bank to deposit the cash, you know, wondering. Um, has it been a bit of a setup is there somebody else that's going to come in uh, knowing that I've got this cash in and attack me and potentially rob me for it so so yeah very eye-opening experience um, and one that you know I'm glad I went through as I say but, but uh, you're always trying to protect young players from going through that type of experience as well so but it was interesting, and then um, I knew it was going to be extremely difficult for me to to pick up another professional contract in Scotland. Yep. Uh, and I had strong a stronger network now, still in Australia. So I had some some good friends. Uh, Clint Bolton again, being one of them, who were in the the Brisbane Strikers squad at that time. And uh, fortunately enough, John Cosmina had some prior knowledge uh, of me as well. I didn't know it at that time, but subsequently. Subsequently, transpired that when I left the AIS, he was looking to sign me for his uh were at the Dolphin side that he had in, in the New South Wales state league um, oh, okay. before I signed for the Wolves. So Cozzy knew me quite well, and um, and when I said that I was going kind of to look at the comeback, uh, John was, was was happy to to make a, a kind of potential offer of a contract. Um, so long as I could get to brisbane and and he could um you know get him playing with the group for a week or so and and make sure that I was the player that that he remembered i was so I say fortunately enough for me that all transpired and and the same for for the brisbane strikers at the back end of of nineteen ninety eight
0: and so that um trial with the strikers wasn't in a public park and and didn't ha- wasn't just a fifteen twenty minute session
1: no absolutely not that the total other end of the spectrum so um on what, what, what I would know, and up to that point anyway, the home of football in, in Queensland, uh, Perry Park, yep. and, uh, and in the dressing room, you know, with uh, Glenn Gwynn and, and Nick Meredith and uh, Andy Harper and, and, and these sorts of guys, uh, Shay Hughes, um, you know, Casey Werman, some some terrific players of the strikers at the time, uh, and yes. Yeah, a proper uh, training or trial stint as it had been at the Wolves, as it had been at Dundee United and St. Mirren, and, and the other clubs that i trained with as well. So um, so yeah, as it should have been.
0: And was it a uh, a good transition back into Australia because your family was still there?
1: I felt I was coming home, if the truth be told. Uh, you know, we'd emigrated to Brisbane uh, what, something like 18 years previous to that. Uh, spent... You know the vast majority of my childhood in Queensland, and, and if you're asking me, that's probably the place that I identify with the most. So I felt I was coming home. You know, felt immense pride that I was going to be playing NSL football for my hometown team. Um, if I can kind of backtrack a little bit uh, prior to signing for the Wolves, um, so whilst I was still at AIS, but knowing that my time was coming to an end, I also had a, a training stint with. Um, Brisbane strikers may may well have been Brisbane United still in those days um, when Bruce Bruce Stoll was the coach so Bruce was aware of me as as a young Queensland player etc I had trained there Uh, there there was at that time there was no uh, concrete offer of a professional contract Uh, I remember after receiving the offer of the contract from Wollongong um, feeling that I at least owed Bruce uh, and Brisbane the opportunity to to be aware that that was happening. Yes. I hadn't made my decision to sign rules at that point, and again I remember dropping the forty cents in the payphone and and <laughs> calling Bruce Stowe and uh, and explaining the situation, saying Bruce, listen, I've had an offer of a contract from Wollongong, and that was near enough about as far as the conversation went. Bruce <laughs> and his his very forthright the style said, "That's fine, son. All the very best," and hung the phone up. Um, <laughs> So that made my decision to sign for the Wolves at that time. So, uh, so, so that that was a bit of backstory. So, so I felt that like, you know a couple of years later, um, I had finally come home and and yeah, just remember having immense pride at uh, being able to represent my hometown team in the NSL.
0: How was it? It's starting your Brisbane Strikers career under John Cosmina.
1: It was terrific. Um, distinctly remember my debut. We played against. Sydney United, who obviously the, the previous sort of um, you know year or two, they had uh, some real ding dong battles, uh, not least the, the grand final obviously at Suncorp yeah. with forty odd thousand there. Uh, there was a couple in the Sydney United team that I had been uh, you know at the AIS or, or in and around kind of young soccer squads with, and, and uh, Richard placer and, and Joe Verkic and people like that. So so it was terrific. Um, I remember very early on in the game. Uh, Jeremy Harris being sent off uh, Andy Harper going off with a hamstring injury so so we're down to 10 men and I'd lost my strike partner um, <laughs> in the game but, but we managed to uh, to claw a 2-2 draw out of it and I scored I think from some camera angles or from the stand looked like a, a terrific chip um, but in reality it was a, a, a deflected shot that flicked off I think Joe Serkic's shin pad and, and looked over the goalkeeper so Scored on debut, you know, couldn't have been um, any much more of a contrast from my time in Hong Kong and, and as I say, celebrating in front of the crowd there at Suncorp, where some of my family in the stand and things like that and, and a lot of good friends was just a, a terrific moment.
0: And do you think um, that start at Brisbane Strikers, did you start to grow up a bit more as well? Obviously, chronologically, you were getting older, but you'd gone through quite a lot as a as a young man being... Professional at the Wolves, um, going to Scotland, and then that stint in Hong Kong. Do you think it held you in good stead in those next few seasons?
1: Absolutely. As I say, from a personal development point of view, you know, I felt I had, you know, grown up, uh, you know, understood how to to take care of myself a lot better. Um, still, as a young man, I look back now, and I think perhaps some of my habits weren't um, as good as they always should have been in, in terms of being a professional footballer. Um, but I wasn't alone in, in that regard. But uh, yeah, I felt like I'd arrived in that sense, and I felt that I'd found a place where um, you know I, I could be valued, and, and I felt uh, you know by that point I'd developed enough maturity to know what it took to be a, a consistent performer at that level. Um, you know, as I say, I joined probably just a, a month or two into the, the season. That year, so played out the season as a a centre forward, Um, managed to finish as as top goal scorer. Um, I think perhaps because we we weren't um, quite as successful as as we should have been, um, or or could potentially have been. Um, And then then I remember early on in the pre-season the following year, um, John pulling me aside and and offering me the captaincy uh, at the strikers. But also, you know, sort of looking at going, you know, kind of back to the future in a sense of, of back to a bit of the AIS days and, and playing more as a centre half rather than a centre forward. So so there's a couple of transitions there and, and, and again just you know, that, that that pride that I had for representing what I thought was my hometown club in the NSL to then being named as, as a captain was um, you know, at, at the age of sort of twenty three, coming twenty four was just absolutely immense. And um you know, one of the highlights of my career for sure.
0: Do you think John had seen some of those leadership traits in you that you might not have seen or did, weren't aware that you had? I think potentially
1: and, and probably, you know, almost from a subconscious level, I had I developed some of those, uh, you know, through through those experiences that we've just been through. But but also as part of my natural makeup, you know, in coming through club and representative sides as a young player, you um, you know, i I'd, I'd been the captain, um, maybe not quite so much at the AIS, but then I was alongside some, you know, outstanding leaders as well. I remember Craig Moore obviously being our captain quite often. Maybe occasionally I might have captained the AIS squad once or twice. I'm talking about yeah. you know, different environments in Scotland and, and in Hong Kong. But certainly when I came back to the strikers, uh, I distinctly remember John making a comment, I think it may have ever been in the media as well, that, that, that I was quite vocal, you know, I wasn't somebody that needed to be prompted to, to speak um, you know, I was, I was I was that type of coach I guess on the pitch, I was quite happy to, to try and direct people around, I was quite happy to, um, to encourage people and, and probably quite happy to give them a bit of a serve as well if it was required um, at that moment, so yeah, I think John probably did recognise those leadership qualities and and I look back on it, it was quite a big decision because uh, Glenn Gwynne was a, the, the captain at yeah. that time and, and, and Gwynne was a different type. He was very much lead by example. You know, He was somebody that everyone in the playing squad admired. He was a terrific defender. Um, Gwynne, but very quiet and unassuming. Um, and I guess John was probably just looking for somebody to be a little bit more more vocal. Um, so it was a big decision for John to, to, to appoint me as a captain in, in place of Gwynne and, and um Again, the respect I had for him was terrific because he came and approached me, Quinny, and just shook my hand and said, no
0: hard feelings and, and let's get on.
1: I think we played as a partnership that, that season at the back uh, for a while. So it was terrific.
0: And what about John as as a as a coach slash manager? I guess people on the outside like myself only see, um, I guess, game day, um, sort of sanitised interviews and, and maybe... Uh, to a lesser extent, what we potentially hear, but for yourself now, not being a player and and being able to give your your full opinion of him, um, how did you how did you rate him as a manager and and as a person?
1: Yeah, I, I can't speak highly enough of John. I think uh, during that time, you see, he, he helped give me a bit of direction in my perif- professional career. Uh, I think you know, in a roundabout way, he also. Um, you know, w- w- was able to give me some, some life lessons and help me start to develop as, as a man as well. Uh, I think John's one of those ones that, that, you're right, you know, if you're in his camp and he's in yours, then, you know, you you get on great with him and you have a lot of admiration. Uh, but at the same time, if, if, if you're um, against him or, or, or he feels that he's against you, then, you know, he could become one of those most hated. You know, he's maybe in a playing sense, the kind of Roy Keane or, or, or almost, uh, from an Australian perspective, a Kevin Musket type yep, one. Yep. You know, you, you either you either love John and you're in his camp or, or you really despise him because you're not in his camp. But, um, you know, from my perspective, you know, he was he was somebody that, that I had a, a professional relationship on that was really positive. Um, and, and from a personal perspective, again, somebody that I'm still keeping contact with now and, and, you know, quite happy to speak to in terms of advice about... Decisions and about the game. I think he's got a terrific uh, football mind. I think he's got a great insight, um, and you know he's a guy that probably a lot of people don't see it at times. But I think he's got a terrific sense of humour as well. So, so great experiences with John. I, I think he was um, very influential in a lot of young players' career. I think if you look at a head coach in the NSL, um, you know without going into all the statistics, but the number of young players that were given an opportunity under John. Um, is um, is a, of an extremely high level. Be up there with anyone. You know, I'm thinking about the Matt McKay's and the John McCain's and yeah. Shane Stefanito's, Wayne Shroy, Jade North. You know, the, the latter two were, were thrown into to the NSL at I think at age 16. Um, you know, the for the same time, all those ones that were given opportunities that went on to achieve great things in the game. Um, there were ones that John was potentially, um, you know. Overly loyal to, I was thinking, and, and, and gave opportunities to young players because they were young players and perhaps had some ability. But I think deep down, you maybe recognise that they um, they weren't quite going to make it. But um, but he was prepared to go and give them an opportunity to play NSL football. So I think the Brisbane Strikers as a club have that ethos. And I think John, at, you know, particularly at that time, was, was very brave, the coach, to go and do that with some of the young players as well.
0: So he had uh, four seasons there. And you uh played there under him and, and amongst other players, uh, how did it come about um that his uh tenure had ended there?
1: yeah well I think the club had made the decision prior to the season ending um you know they communicated that to to John and then obviously that became known to the playing group that his contract wasn't going to be renewed, you know, so it wasn't um a kind of a, a sacking half the way through the season or or anything else like that so you know, I wasn't privy to all the details, so I don't know whether it was a, a mutual parting, whether John felt that he'd, he'd done as much as he possibly could at the club, or, or they couldn't agree on what direction was going to be. But again, I felt that you know that the strikers—that um, is one of the things that they do. That they are quite loyal to people, and they like to try and do things in a, in a certain way. And, and obviously, stacking a coach during the season is not something that they, they usually do. So, so that was how that all transpired. Um, it was interesting because, as I say, I, from from my perspective, it was a little bit of a step now into the unknown again. You know, there was some real stability there with with, with for me. He was obviously somebody um, who appreciated and valued me as a player, appointed me as a captain. You know, played um, almost every week so long as I was I was uh, pulling my weight. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: so with that kind of going, it, it, it uh, you know brought about a certain amount of uncertainty. Um, I also, in that off-season, went back to Scotland um, You know, with my fiance at that time to, to get married. Um, we got married in Scotland predominantly because more friends and family were based here, so it was less people to travel. Um, but we still had a, a number of people, obviously, that came from Australia. So, so I was um, uh, being married in Scotland. My contract also was up for renewal, um, and at that point, you know, not in a in an awkward way, but in a straightforward way, I'd say to the club that I would wait to see who was appointed as the new head coach before I made any decision on, on signing a new contract. Yep. And um, I distinctly remember having a, an email conversation with one of the directors at the time. And, and I think jokingly I have put in, in the email along one of the lines um, that if they, if they couldn't find another coach or they, or they didn't weren't able to appoint anybody that, that I would quite happily take it on. Um, you know, probably jesting, but uh, <laughs> as we all know, a lot of truth is said in jest and, and probably deep down, you know I, know, I know deep down I always had aspirations to go into coaching beyond playing, um, but, you know, hand on heart, didn't think that, uh, that that type of opportunity would come about so early. So not much more was said. I returned to Australia and, um, you know, essentially was was called to a meeting at, at the chairman's office. And... Uh, and was offered on the spot that the opportunity to become the, the player coach for the Brisbane Strikers in, in what turned out to be the, the last ever NSL season
0: and for you the the idea of player coach it, it probably wasn't around at that point in time and, and really is not normal or orthodox in any shape or form it probably was more in the 70s and 80s and a little bit in the 90s so how did you approach it with the with the playing the playing staff and and former teammates now that you play a coach
1: yeah it was all the circumstances were quite unusual i, I wasn't sure whether the strikers um had looked upon you know the kind of success of winning the grand final etc when Frank was appointed player coach and obviously i didn't have the, the, the kind of career or the profile that, that Frank did but i think they maybe felt that that it was a similar kind of um fit you know to have your um, you know, your leader, I guess, at that time and, and, and somebody. Uh, I'm sure there were other reasons, you know, but it's not, uh, let's not hide the fact. Some of them might have been financial, obviously, mm. as well. Uh, to, to a point to me, but again, I do think that the strikers of that club whose who development is at the core of them um, and they maybe saw an opportunity to, to, to go and, you know, expose a, a young... Uh, man to, to his first feature in, in coaching so it was interesting my approach really to it was quite straightforward and simple you know I had had little bits of coaching experience with local youth teams and and right from an early age always being involved in, in um, helping clubs operate holiday camps etc etc. I had the good fortune of, of, of always um, having an admiration for uh, good coaches, you know, right back to the Rockhampton days with my dad and Gary Johnson and, and Richard Evans and then um, and obviously the AIS, etc. cetera, Ron Smith. And so I always tried to take the good habits from these guys as well. Um, but I tried to take the approach that, you know, what would I want as a player? What would I want from my coach as a yeah. player? Um, and, and I always tried to be honest and, and, and straightforward with the guys as much as I possibly could. Uh, on the other side of it, from a playing perspective, I just took on the the, the approach of well like, I can't ask the players to go and do something that I'm not prepared to do myself particularly you know at that age at 28 I'd only just turned 28 that I still you know wanted to play every week it wasn't like the case I was 34 35 and thought well I'll just play now and again um, I wanted to play every week so I, I trained every session uh, the same as all the other players um, and if I look back on it now you know whilst it was great for me um, to, to have that. Responsibility and make certain decisions around recruitment and and the sort of preparation of the squad and, and everything else like that. It's it's far from ideal to be able to still combine training and play because you just you know you miss the biggest part of it, which is obviously observing your squad um, when they're working and operating uh, and trying to remove yourself from them a little bit from the management perspective as well was difficult. I probably did cross the line in terms of being too close to players at different times. But, but at the same time, I think um, you know if you go back and ask some of the guys, they've still got some respect for for me as a person as a coach because I was always uh, honest and forthright with them. You know, I remember having conversations with players week after week about why they weren't in the squad. Um, and as I said, I always had that approach of, well, what would I want as a player from my coach? And if I was being left out of the squad, I would, I would at least... Uh, well, so you'd never agree with a decision, you would at least um, respect them for, for for being honest and, and upfront and giving you a, an explanation, and it gives you an opportunity to to work at those aspects that they're told about. So, so that's how I approached it. Um, at the same time, I, I had my own views, which maybe differed slightly to those that, that, that Cosy had, yeah.
2: um,
1: and I felt that there was some some talent within the Brisbane, um, you know, in Queensland area that that had been unearthed um and i gave uh, some some debuts to, to guys who you know who were you know into their twenties um and they went on to to you know be successful for us that season um and go on and, and do some things in, in the a league as well so particularly um carl Doran and josh mcclagan really yeah. um, were two guys that I hadn't put well hadn't played any n s l really um, Dodsey, to be fair, had been in and, and tried with the strikers and I think Cosie might have taken him on but um, unfortunately he suffered a bad knee injury so, so there were a couple of players like that um, but what we did develop I think in that year was a real camaraderie a real band of brothers because we were predominantly Queensland products and Queensland players, you know, we had a few in there with some experience um, myself and Shane Stefanuto and, and Peter Grierson was a good old head, and um, Matty Mackay was emerging, you know. So we had some good young talent as well. But we had a lot of young players and, and players like Josh and Carl who were so keen to just to prove themselves. Um, and we almost got that sort of thing where, particularly I think from down south, there was a you know a, a lack of respect or, or um,
2: you know a,
1: a kind of assumption that that because they had a, a young first time player coach and you know not too many players of real note. That we would struggle in the league, and I, and I think we, we had that kind of back to the wall mentality, that seed mentality, and and um, and we went on to to I guess achieve some relative success in making the playoffs that year, um, and you know unfortunately go down in a, in a blaze of glory where we beat Adelaide United four one at home in the second leg of the semi final, but unfortunately we would lost the first leg three um, 0 so we went out on a way goal. So, but it was um, it was great times, great times so
0: for you you spoke about then about the Queensland products in the team how do you as as a coach now see it that there's intangible things even in a professional environment that some of what you achieved then was the motivation of people feeling proud of i guess their state of their town and and that contributed to not just being professionals and and being good players and having skills and new coaching well that there's these intangibles in professional sport
1: there definitely are you know that the more and more uh i get involved in coaching and coach education look, uh, you know that the, the ability of players from a technical perspective you obviously have to have uh, a certain level and, and the better level you've got the better chance you've got of being successful um you know, players that, that, that understand the game from a tactical perspective and how well a team is prepared from a tactical perspective, you, you can never uh, underestimate the importance of that. But the more I'm involved in things, uh, and it goes without saying, you need to be uh, physiologically at your peak. You need to be fit um, to compete at, 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 uh, at any level in the modern game. But the more and more I'm involved in things, the more I'm recognising that it's the mentality that can make the biggest difference, you know, and, and that's from an individual perspective, obviously, in terms of having them at their peak to perform. Yep. Um, but also that collective, you know, if you look at the, the the runaway success at Liverpool, where until you know, COVID 19 has interrupted them, and you look at the, the, the camaraderie, the togetherness, and, and that's fostered by Klopp, you know, how much he cares for the players. I think it's well known about. Guardiola as well, you know, we know the resources these guys have got. They've got some of the best players in the world to work with, but that, that always doesn't just equate to success as something else. And and that mentality thing, probably without really understanding or having the same understanding that I do now was a huge part to, to that, you know, relative success that we had with the strikers that year. As I say, we had a number of players that were desperate to to go and prove that they could play at that level, you know, um, it wasn't only Josh and Carl. It was Josh Rose, as I say, uh, Luke Morley, Royce Brownlee, people like that. Yeah. Um, uh, David Pillich was was terrific for us in the middle part. Matt MacKay we spoke about. Uh, Shane Stefanou had played a few seasons, and uh, but he was looking to try and further his career. Um, and in fact, during that season, was um, you know was was moved on to to the club in Norway that he went to play for. So. So we did. We had that collective. And as I say, we, we had that identity of being Queenslanders. And, and we had that siege, siege mentality of, well, I think people out there really doubt us and don't think we can achieve anything. Let's go and prove them wrong. Um, and we did that on a consistent basis right from the off. You know, I remember the very first game uh, going away to Northern Spirit. Laurie McKinnon and, and Ian Ferguson had the side. And they had a few half-decent players at the time. And, and we beat them 4-2. And I think a few people were shocked by that um and the season continued on you know i think the first home game was perth glory and we drew 0-0 and perth were a, were an absolute powerhouse at that yeah. time but but we went to total. um so it was, it was it was great you know that, that we were able to do that and, and that was was no question um a big part of, of our identity that year for sure
0: and for you the NSL had ended at, at the end of that season and, and then, I guess, not just yourself, but others were having question marks about their footballing careers. For you, uh, I guess, what were you feeling about your future as a footballer, a player and or coach?
1: Yeah, it was it was uh, really uncertain times. Uh, I have to say that the, the strikers were terrific in that they um, retained myself uh, and one or two others on the payroll at that time whilst the, the A-League um, bid process was going on. So the strikers were obviously bidding uh, in competition with uh, what was known as the kind of Brisbane or Queensland Lions yep. football club at that time. They, you know, have morphed into what we now know as, as Brisbane Roar and came from the Queensland Roar. So, whilst that bid process was going on, I say the strikers were exceptional in terms of supporting me because they believed, you know, they were going to be the, the team that was going to. Uh, be representing Brisbane and Queensland in the A-League. Um, but certainly when that decision went in favour of the, the Queensland Roar, um, it became very interesting times. Um, whilst the bid process was going on, uh, Miron Bladberg had reached out to me um, and spoken to me about uh, the potential scenarios and, and how we saw it playing out if there became a joint bid um, and if the Queensland Roar bid was successful, uh, and so part of me in in, um, in the back of my mind felt reasonably uh, comfortable that should it go either way, I would have a future with whoever was representing um, you know Queensland in the a Obviously, the Roar um, got given the nod, and and in the sort of subsequent weeks and and what turned out to be a couple of months. Um, things didn't quite transpire as I expected them to. And and there there wasn't a future for me um, in the inaugural kind of road squad, either as a player and or a coach. So that became an interesting time because I reached out to a couple of other people in Australian football, uh, looking for the opportunities. And and most had um, felt that I was probably a shoo-in for for being part of any Queensland bid, so had never thought of me in their plan. Uh, And I I became stuck. You know, I'd, um, I had commitments like everybody does, a mortgage, etc. cetera. And, and now in a position where I didn't know how I was going to meet them um, unless I gave uh, football away and, and, and turned to a real job. And, and, and obviously the fear of that just uh, went right through me. <laughs> but uh, in all seriousness, I was, I was fortunate um, in a sense that, uh, that Dave Mitchell was the, the head coach of Sarawak in Malaysia at that point. Yeah. Um, he... He was looking for a player of my type, um, had been you know, what he felt, I think, um, a good way down the line with somebody. But unfortunately, you know, well, off, unfortunately for him, but fortunately for me probably, that didn't transpire. And, and so there became an opportunity for me to, to go and join um, Sarawak in Malaysia um, under Dave Mitchell. So, so that's that was the next stop for me.
0: And, and how was that in terms of um, your family or your partner, um, going to Malaysia? Did she come with you or, or did she stay at home? Or, and and how was that uh, life with or without her in a country like Malaysia?
2: Yeah,
1: it, it became really challenging and, and quite stressful, uh, in all honesty, because, um, you know, it was, was myself and, and my wife, uh, recent, obviously wife, we'd only be married sort of someone just over a year or so by that point. Um, we had commitments. Obviously, she had a, a job uh, in Brisbane and, and, and we had a, a mortgage on the house we were living in. So to go to Malaysia for a year's contract and, and drop everything wasn't uh, you know wasn't a decision we wanted to take. At the same time, I felt that that, that was the best opportunity for me to, to provide for us, was to go and earn, earn a living uh, playing football in Malaysia. So, so I went and she stayed. Um, so that was very difficult for us. Uh, I, w- I was able to to come back and visit at, at, at various periods. Um, what made it even more difficult was um, a, a short period of time into my stay. Uh, in one of our phone calls, she let me know that she was um, pregnant with her first child.
2: Uh-huh.
1: So, it became a, a real challenge. I, I went and spoke to Dave, obviously, about it uh, and said to him, listen, I'll be committed to, to stay, you know, and and and. Uh, fulfil the contract and try and help Mitch uh, out as best I could up to a certain point. But, you know, prior to the contract, obviously ending, I, I would need to leave to go back to Australia to, to support my wife um, through the latter stages of the pregnancy. And, and obviously at that time I started to think about, well, you know, i go back to Australia, what, what am I going to do? Um, so Dave was, was was terrific, you know, as a, as a human being, he, he understood the position that I was in and was prepared to support me. Um, and then things kind of unravelled a little bit. I went back to the Easter break. We hadn't been paid. Our wages were overdue. Um, you know, I'd lodged some complaints with the PFA in Australia, etc. Gave me great advice on how to handle the situation. I um, I returned then to Malaysia after that break, uh, ready to, to start up again. Um, and, uh, and went to meet Mitch and was talking about, okay, well, what's the next game, and training, et cetera, and, and uh, he advised me that, that he'd been sacked, <laughs> which I was unaware of. And, um, yeah, there ensued another another interesting sort of story. So, as I say, the, the wages remained unpaid. Um, what had transpired was that there was some kind of board meeting, and there was a faction that, that were happy to support Mitch as a, an overseas coach, and there was a faction that were... Uh, wanted a, a local coach yep. um, and whichever way the votes obviously went, it went with a local coach. So, so Mitch was ousted and a and local guy was appointed. Um, and I remember a number of weeks later, again, the wages still hadn't been paid and we went to play a game in Kuala Lumpur um, and myself and the other Australian player, Shane Thompson from Adelaide, were called down to the, the coach's hotel room, you know, maybe half an hour before, getting on the bus and and, and there'd been a big board meeting that day Um, I believe his appointment was only temporary at the time Um, and he told us that the outcome of the board meeting was you know the certain group had had, uh, got into power Uh, his position was now permanent and by the way here's your wages again (laughs) paid in cash as is the style in uh, in Asia single Southeast Asia at that time Uh, and I think he was trying to use it as some kind of motivation for that game you know think well the boys will be happy now they've been paid their money um, so myself and Shane took, took the money back to the hotel room and put it in the safe, obviously, and, and went and played the game. Um, so that was, you know, again another eye-opening experience. Um, but it wasn't too long after that that I sort of spoke to, to the, the people higher up in the club and explained the situation. As I say, that you know, fortunately enough for me, they were quite understanding and, um, and they allowed me to go to go back to Australia. Um, at, at that point, I was I was a little bit of a loose end. Um, I, I played locally. Brisbane Strikers were playing in the local competition, so I played there. Um, and luckily enough, George Cowie had been appointed as a state technical director with Football Queensland. Yeah. Um, and once George was aware that I was back in Brisbane, he, um, he he offered me a position as a development officer within Football Queensland, trying to to help and support a number of initiatives they had. So so I got. You know, an early taste of that type of work, you know, which was coaching and, and even sort of coach uh, development and, yeah. and coach education stuff. Um, and started doing a little bit of work alongside that uh, within the Queensland Academy of Sport Programme. So so initially, um, the idea was floated, uh, ironically, with, with Bruce Stoll, who was in charge of the men's programme at that time. <laughs> Um, wouldn't aspire so, so I worked alongside Mike Mulvey with the women's programme which, which was great, you know, it gave me a, another exposure to a different experience in, in a different aspect of the game and thoroughly enjoyed working with that group of players and, and with Mike as well, who's a, a terrific coach um, and, and some of the players obviously have gone on to achieve enormous success with the Matildas and the like, you know, we're talking about players like uh, Tamika Butt um, Elise Kellen knight um, Laura Alleyway these, these, these girls have gone on to be terrific players for the Matildas so, so that was a good experience Mike then the Queensland Academy of Sport men's programme after that and and, uh, and again I had the opportunity to work with, with some of those so learn a little bit more about what it took to be a development coach with players in that kind of you know, 15, 16, 17 year old um, bracket um, and then as things transpired uh, there was an injury replacement opportunity uh, for me to to go in at the Roar. I think it was um, Josh McCloggan had had, had given himself quite a serious injury um, and uh, there was a a need for the Roar to have an experienced centre-half come in and and, uh, and Miron kind of extended the olive branch, if you like, and and that kind of instigated my return to the Roar and and finishing up with Football Queensland.
0: And Miron, uh, as a coach, he, he seemed his public persona was very, I guess, out there at times, um, and and definitely said what he what he felt. Um, how was he inside the playing group? Nolan was
1: an interesting character. Um, I, I probably didn't spend uh, a long enough period of time, uh, and obviously he was he was different to, to what I had experienced by and large. So I would never profess to say that I got to know Miron so well. I think uh, with maturity from my side it becomes a greater understanding that there's different approaches. And, and as I say, Miron had a had a different approach to how he saw managing a, a senior professional football club to to a lot of the the coaches that I had up to that point, and probably you know different, to, well certainly different to to how I viewed things, but. That doesn't mean to say that it's that that one is right or one is wrong; that they're both just different, um, yeah. you know. And, and and that was my sort of experience of, of Miron. You know, I think he had um, some good ideas and good initiatives, and at the same time, some of his, his methods and things like that, I wouldn't necessarily always agree with. But but uh, I think that's always going to be the way uh, with things. So, like no one, no one can deny uh, Miro on his place in terms of what he did and the role that he played in getting. You know the the Queensland Roar up and running because I think to that club he was um, he was more than just the kind of coach of the first team. He was involved in a lot more behind the scenes, and and he is, uh, to my understanding, quite successful. You know, as a businessman away from football. So so um, you know, there's got to be some admiration for, for that side of things. So um, yeah, it didn't transpire that we worked together too long. Um, before, you know, he, he felt that it was best to sort of step aside or the club decided it was best for him to step aside. Um, and that's when obviously Frank was appointed um, at the door. Uh,
0: Frank Verena, synonymous with Australian football in terms of playing and coaching. Uh, how did you find Frank?
1: Yeah, again, it was... it was. Um, I didn't have the opportunity then to, to, to work with Frank for, for too long. Um, I think at that point I, I probably had uh a, a year and a bit maybe, um, if it was that on my contract to run. Uh I remember in the in the relatively early part to it, Frank um you know, leaning on me reasonably heavily in, in terms of probably going back to those leadership qualities that you mentioned uh, that that Cosie perhaps saw in me. Uh and I captained the 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 team, you know, in, in the latter parts of the season that, that Frank first took over, you know, half the way through sort of thing. So there was that side to it. Obviously, uh, Frank was was very good and, and had some clarity in terms of how he saw the squad and, and what it needed. Uh, and he recruited some some excellent, experienced players. Obviously, Craig Moore was one of them. Mm. So it was terrific for me to, to have the opportunity to, to be in the squad and play alongside Craig a couple of times because we had uh, been in the same Queensland side together as 15-year-olds, uh, been in the same AIS groups, um, had linked up a little bit when uh, when Craig was at Rangers and I was at Stirling Albion. I remember playing a preseason friendly against them as well, so it was terrific for all of that to come full circle. Um, Danny Teato was another one that was obviously added to the group. Um, so Frank, you know, really relied heavily on, on experience, and probably through that second season, um, as things transpired, uh, it was difficult because I, I wasn't in the kind of starting eleven plans for a little while and then I think when I got my opportunity um, you know, as, as a holding midfield player I couldn't get into the squad as a second a half Craig and, and Sasha Obunovsky or Josh McCloughan became the kind of preferred partnership um, but I found myself a role in the team as a, as a holding midfield player and I think you know where I was uh, in my three at that time I, I, I was never the quickest um, but I had a good understanding obviously the game I was able to fulfil that role and I think the balance of the team was good because I had Mass Madoka for me yeah. on one side and Matt McKay on the other side. You know, two of the players were at the highest energy levels in the league so I just had to play in the centre circle and, and break up attacks and make sure that they got the ball and, and, and went and got us going forward. And we went on a really good run. I got myself into the team. We went on a terrific run um, which got us to the top of the league. And then I never had good experiences playing in in uh, New Zealand. You know, whether it be against the Auckland Kings in the old NSL or, or New Zealand Knights yeah. um as they were in the early part of the A League and um unfortunately against the Wellington Phoenix I suffered um uh, quite a bad ankle injury. You know, it was right sort of before Christmas time um, and when I did it I thought right I'm going to need to do everything I possibly can to get myself, you know, back into the team when we start back up early in January, uh, because I'd, I'd been out the early part of the season, couldn't get in, and then, as I say, I got in and we had a really good run. Um, but unfortunately, the ankle injury turned out to be far more serious than uh, than what it was. It was a a chondral flap tear, so basically, I'd taken a golf divot at the cartilage in my ankle. Oh. Um, you know, subsequently, transpired that I needed surgery, and you know, given the age that I was. Uh, the, the kind of advice was that whilst there would be nothing stopping me from going back to full-time training and playing, the damage that that would do to my ankle long-term, you know, could potentially lead to some um, some serious issues. So, you know, effectively it kind of ended me, you know, which was um, which was tough to take, as I said, because uh, I worked quite hard to get myself into Frank's plans. We'd been on a, a great run, got yeah. to the top of the league. Uh, you know, got, got dealt a bit of further blow in a sense because I'd never won um, a trophy or a medal, uh, you know, be it a cup or a league or anything else like that as a senior professional player. Um, and we went to to Adelaide on the last day of the season, I think, needing to to draw or win the game to to win, you know, what we would say is win the league or yeah. win the minor premiership. And I thought this is great. If I'm going to go out, I'm at least going to go out with a medal. Um, but unfortunately, lost the game that day, and, and we finished second, I think. So. So I never got the, the medal that I was after. So it was um, it was tough to take, but at the same time, you know, it gave me an opportunity to to reflect back on the things that I had achieved in in, in my career, um, and led again to, to me sort of transitioning into into coaching. You know, I had had some conversations with Frank that year. You know, was did he view me as as somebody who was going to keep in the playing squad? or was there potentially going to be an opportunity to become involved in the coaching side of it? I think there was uh, the youth league squads being mooted at that time and, mm. um, you know, with potential to perhaps take on that role if I wasn't going to be in the, in the playing squad. But obviously, when the, when the injury transpired, um, you know, the discussions didn't go too much further. Uh, and then I, w- I was able to, um, you know, in, upon leaving the Roar, uh, go back to, to my club, if you like, uh, the Brisbane Strikers again for um, uh, for a coaching role there in the, in the kind of newly established um, QSL, which we would now know as the MPL Queensland.
0: And like you said, was it was it good to be back with your home club where you had had such good memories, and, and from a playing and coaching perspective, you'd done so well.
1: Yeah, well as I said, I think from a, a relatively early stage in my career, I always had that longer term view that I would go into coaching beyond playing um i had obviously the, the great fortune or the good support from the strikers to have that experience as a player coach in the national league um I, I picked up some other coaching experience and, and started going through my qualifications with with the FFA in terms of b license and, and going toward the a license etc uh in those kind of last playing days with um with with the role and the likes so it was terrific yeah, to get back to the Strikers, um, you know, the club that had given me so much sort of support. Uh, and I just felt that, that it, was, uh, it was the club where I sort of belonged. Um, and I said about really trying to, now that I, I had some more experience and more understanding about what it took um, to be not only a first-team coach, but to actually try and establish the, the culture and the ethos um, of an entire club. So we, we had a, a good youth programme going there um, and we tried to, to. We worked really hard in those first sort of two years when I was there in the, in the QSL to establish um, a culture of, of development and professionalism. And you know, I'm, I'm really pleased from time to time when I hear uh, now from from people that are connected to the club that um, that some of those standards and, and ways of working are, are still in place uh, at the striker So so again, it was it was another good experience for me. You know, still such a young coach, probably 32, 33 years of age at that time.
2: Yeah,
1: I I, I did initially go back in and, and, and try and play a little bit, um, but I do distinctly remember that the day when when I kind of made my mind up. You know, I think we had a um, an away game in Mackay. The, uh, the squad was to report to Perry Park before we travelled to the airport, and I and I got to Perry Park. About an hour or two early, with the, the intention of uh, of working on my conditioning, so doing some running that had been prescribed for me. Um, and I think maybe less than half of the way into the, the the running program I had for the day, I just didn't have that same motivation to keep going. You know, throughout probably my twenties, I'd always, and certainly when I got to the role as an older player, I always prided myself on on being as physically fit as I possibly could, and 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 really working hard at that aspect of things. Um, but that day, it just the motivation had gone. You know, to, to work at that, to keep fit, to go on and play. My motivation was was turning more and more towards um, what I could do and then the influence that I could have as a coach. So, so that was the day I decided to,
0: to hang it up. Yeah, it's funny that um, some things in life uh, happen that way, where it it sort of comes out of nowhere. But I guess it had been. Uh, building uh, mentally and physically uh, for some time
1: yeah i had been as i say obviously mentally i've been preparing myself for the day when the plane would stop and, and really wanted to be involved in the game as close as I couldn't coaching was it you know i had uh, lots of I guess role models as i mentioned before um you know the, when the news came back to me about how severe the ankle was at, uh, the ankle injury was at the roar um, i remember being absolutely devastated you know that, that, that everything that I'd had from a seven-year-old kid watching the '82 World Cup, wanting to be a pro, to, to everything I experienced, um, you know, and it was over. And but I wasn't ready, you know, I was having a a good spell, probably yeah. one of the best spells in my career, and 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 to have that taken away. So so I remember being absolutely devastated, um, locking myself away in the change room, and 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 I don't mind admitting that having a good old cry to myself uh, at that point. But you know that kind of uh, negative, as you say, within a, a matter of weeks and months, uh, it transpired into a huge positive. And, and I can't thank the Brisbane Strikers enough for showing the faith in me that they did. And, and, and I was able then to, to sink my teeth into, you know, the second career, if you like, and, and really go and start out properly on that uh, that journey as a coach.
0: And like you said, you had three successful. Seasons at, at the Brisbane Strikers in the QSL, and and some of those, uh, I guess, remnants of what you'd set up um, at the club all those years ago uh, are still in play now, which which should make you quite proud. Um, how did how did it come about that you uh, were considered for the assistant coaching role at at the North Queensland Fury?
1: Yeah, I remember um, completing the final part of my A license down in Sydney. Uh, and Han Berger was the the, uh, the technical director at the time, um, and I I had some you know small dealings with Han previously. Uh, the club obviously had had the uh, well, come to the, the the troubled end of the first season, and, and the ownership and the coaching staff obviously had, had been moved on, and mm-hmm. at that point the FFA were controlling. So so I spoke to Han and said, listen, you know. I would I would love the opportunity if you felt that there was something I could contribute from a a coaching perspective you know be that an assistant or a second assistant or a, or the head coach or whatever it may be. So so that was kind of noted I think. Um and then uh, you know probably following that um Archie Fraser uh, was the guy I guess from a strategy point of view that was charged with trying to make appointments and, and get people in place from an operational side to, to get the club up and running. So, um, Archie reached out and and, and he advised me of his plan obviously, to recruit a coach from Europe, but, but to um, offer me the opportunity to work as his assistant. Um, and I was, I was delighted to take that, you know, a, a chance now, uh, you know, again, sort of early to mid-thirties, um, to become an assistant coach Within the, the A League uh, at a club within my home state, and obviously, having spent the time previously in regional Queensland, had a bit yeah. of an affinity uh, for that, that side of things. Um, so it was terrific. That, that was how that all one uh, transpired. You know, Robbie Middleby had been a player there and, and had been moved now into the administration side of things, the general manager, and Robbie and I had spent time together at the AIS as well. So there was a, a, another kind of connection. Uh, coming back there. Um, So it was great to work alongside Robbie um, and Robbie Crayham as well, who was subsequently appointed uh, as the kind of chief executive. Um, And of course, Fran Stracker, another character um, as the head coach and working alongside him. So, you know, it it was only the one season, um, but nonetheless, you know, an enjoyable one from my perspective and certainly one that was beneficial in terms of the things that I've learnt uh, as a coach.
0: So, at the end of uh, that season, or, or it could have been early 2011, uh, you made a sort of, uh, I guess, a 180-degree uh, move and a, a transcontinental move back to the UK to, to take a head coach role at a university. Uh, what brought about this move? Yeah, look,
1: the, 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 the job at, at Loughborough University as a head coach there with the elite football program Uh, came about after uh, we relocated back to the UK. So, you know, at a point during that time with the Fury, um, you know, I'd spoken, we we had two children now uh, by this point, and I really felt that um, my wife was missing her friends and family back in the UK. You know, we discussed the possibility of of returning, um, and I just felt that, uh, you know, she had supported me Uh, by leaving her friends and family in the UK and and residing in Australia for what was sort of 12 coming 13 years. Um, And that maybe the time was right to, to to pay a bit back and, um, and come back to the UK so that she could, she could become closer to her her friends and family. And, and I think, you know, whilst my stocks were, I guess, reasonably high uh, in the coaching circles um, within Australia, um, I, and probably, you know, in the perfect world, I, I would have um, stayed within that A League environment
2: and and and
1: saw, uh, you know, why I might be able to have gone on that type of the journey. There was the challenge then of saying, okay, well, can I go back to the UK and and try and establish myself and and learn some things um, from a professional standpoint as a coach over here? So predominantly, the move back to the UK was for family reasons. Um, but you know, at the back of my mind, I looked at it as as another challenge professionally to try and you know, come to a place where I didn't have any kind of standing or or name or reputation. Um, And see if I could forge my way, you know, from a a coaching perspective and make a better fist of it than I did as a player, I guess. So so we came back to Scotland. Um, It was as difficult as I expected it to be to kind of break into the football here. Um, And so the university job was an interesting one because unlike a lot of football jobs, um, it was done, I guess, in the traditional employment, uh, method in that the the job was advertised, people sent in applications, and there was a, a shortlist compiled. Fortunately, I was on that and got an interview, and um, obviously performed well enough at the interview and, and, and was offered the job. So, so again, I got to thank the strikers inadvertently for that because um, I subsequently found out during my time at Loughborough that my application there were some issues or well, they weren't quite sure because I didn't come from the same sort of background of having a coaching career or playing yep. career in England and the likes. Uh, and, and it was only, um, uh, I guess, the kind of the, the parting uh, of my time, the last time I left the Strikers to go to the Fury. Um, an article on the website that appeared being written by a gent called Steve Pittman, who still does a lot of the media stuff for the Strikers, and um, I guess sung my praises. And, and that was kind of one of the things that uh, that the, the the managers at Loughborough Uni um, took on board um, and thought, well, you know, here's someone with a different profile. Um, people speaking really highly of him. All the other things added up, obviously, and, and they offered me the, um, the chance to interview. So again, you know, really fortunate, I think, because of, you know, what I was then able to draw out with that experience. You know, you're talking about from UK perspective, probably the closest we could have to the, um, the institutions that, that we know of in American sport. You know, we talk yep. about uh, the college system there. Um, you know, Loughborough is synonymous with, with sporting excellence in the UK. So, you know, the list of athletes uh, from Commonwealth and Olympic perspective is really long, probably headed by Seb Coe. Um, you know, lots of uh uh, I guess, achievements from a, a research perspective into, into coaching and to sports science, et cetera, et cetera. So it really was, you know, not just from a footballing perspective, but from a coaching and from a multidisciplinary perspective, uh, a real education for me. Um, you know, the, the things I was exposed to were terrific, but also the people that I was able to to meet and work alongside were were outstanding as well.
0: For me, uh, just out of curiosity, where does uh, the university football system sit in the UK football pyramid? So the, the actual
1: university uh, competition, so there's the British University and Colleges Sport um, Organisation or BUCS as it's known. So so they operate or provide a sort of competition structure for all of university sports. So everything from archery to, to badminton to football to canoeing, to you can name yep. it. Um, and so, so there's a football uh, uh, competition within that, which within uh, university and college, obviously network um, is quite high uh, in terms of its stature and its prestige. Outside of that, I think it, it doesn't gain the recognition for the quality that it potentially has, so in, in the wider football circles. Um, as, as a university programme, we were set up as a club to compete in the non-league pyramid within England. So, obviously, okay. below League Two, you have the National League. Now, what used to be known as the Conference, um, the National League, North and South, obviously, is Tier 2. So, we were at Tier 5, which was a, okay. a kind of Midland League. We would we would play against um, men's sides from uh, from the Birmingham and, and Coventry and, and Nottingham kind of area, uh,
2: okay. predominantly.
1: So, so that was a challenge to, to run that programme because, you know... It, Wednesday uh, was the day for university sport, which was fine because everything happened within term time. Um, But the nature of uh, non-league football, I think our league had something like 24 teams in it, so 46 league games. (laughs) You were also involved in early stages of the FA Cup, which was terrific. Um, Also, there's a a trophy called the FA VAS, which is for non-league teams up to Step 5. Um, uh, and also your own League Cup as well. So uh, I think I counted it out one year uh, or, or in each of the first two seasons that I was there that I took charge of something like 67 or 68
0: competitive games. Wow, that's phenomenal. Um,
1: which, yeah, which are, are challenging, obviously, from a university uh, team perspective because games are played as is the traditional way in the UK. Um Across holiday periods, so you know Christmas time we played on Boxing Day, you know <laughs> even in the non-league at that level, um, and and you're talking about university students who didn't come from the Loughborough area, so so asking them to come back to play uh, in a non-league fixture on Boxing Day, you know when uh, which was out, obviously out of term time, the summer time obviously was out of term time, so we would start our FA Cup uh, program probably late July. And term time didn't start till September. So asking the students to come and be based in and around the, the university at that time was, was quite challenging. So, so lots of things, but, but thoroughly enjoyable. Um, you know, from a performance perspective, we actually achieved you know, some good success in the sense that we equaled the highest ever placing. We finished fourth um, in, the, in, that, uh, in that Midlands League. We, um, we won the League Cup back to back, which had never been done before um Loughborough had a, a huge success history of success uh in box football but certainly in the bucks competition so so we were able to um in my second and third year anyway um you know win the kind of bucks trophy and like that, which was great um but you know that, that those are sort of superficial things the, the predominant you know objective of that program uh, is to you know, further the careers of of young young uh, young men. So we had a, a couple who were able to go back into professional football. So the young lad George Williams, who's found himself back at MK Dons, which was yep. his local club, and ironically the club that released him <laughs> when, when he was of 18 years of age, and, and enabled him to come to Loughborough. Um, but the vast majority have gone on to to have careers, you know, in their their chosen field of. Stuff. Of study at Loughborough, and obviously as footballers, a lot of them were sports science. There's a an enormous network of Loughborough alumni working at football clubs, you know, across the UK and even around the world. Um, and so, you know, that that kind of network has enabled uh, a lot of the Loughborough students to gain, you know, intern experience and subsequently jobs at you know clubs like Chelsea and Sheffield United and and Liverpool and and all of these places, Manchester United. So. and and even in my time that I was there, you know, as I said, I was fortunate for the people that I came into contact with. So the, um, the the professor who runs the the kind of sport masters and sports coaching degree has done an enormous amount of of research into um, coaching and has published a a lot of articles and books. Um, Professor Chris Cushion, if if people are, are, are in that field, they'll, they'll know Chris's name. Well, he was one of my assistant coaches. You know, he, he obviously was a, uh, ahead of the school in, in terms of the, the coaching program there, from an academic perspective, but but obviously has coaching and football through his blood, so it was terrific to to work alongside Chris in that aspect. And again, somebody that will now call a friend, and, and you know we can have discussions about coaching as a whole, as well as having had that experience of working together in the program. Um, you know, other guys that had the opportunity to work with uh, Kieran McKenna who's now you know one of the first team coaches at Manchester United, was. Uh, a student in his early 20s had been a, a young pro at Spurs and injury unfortunately had stopped him in his playing career so he'd come to Loughborough to do a sports science degree um, and, and I worked with Kieran in my first year again he was one of my assistant coaches um, and you know his career has taken him back to Spurs as a youth coach onto Man United as an under 18 coach and then um, Jose appointed him to the first team and he's obviously still there working under Ollie. so it's um It's terrific to know that you've you've kind of worked alongside and and shared experiences, you know, that have helped form part of the journey for coaches that have gone on to do that. As I say, there's a couple of other guys who um, who were students at the time, um, who we got involved within other teams within the program, working with us, who are now um, involved, I say, at Chelsea and at Sheffield United and and other clubs uh, across the the country, which is terrific.
0: It seems uh, amazing to me you think of uh english football or the united kingdom with you know the league clubs 92 league clubs and, and like you said non-league to the width and breadth um that the sport uh encompasses uh including universities it's it's amazing to hear um your words on on your time there so so what what brought about um after a, a few years there it brought about your wanting to uh become the manager at Stirling Albion?
1: Well, it was um, a case where we were based in Scotland um, and I was, uh, you know, my wife and kids were here and I was almost commuting in a sense to Loughborough. So I had a base there, but every kind of two to three weeks I would um, come up the road on a a Saturday night after our game uh, and get the Sunday, Monday, Tuesday at home and get back down to Loughborough before the the Wednesday game. So, you know, I I was prepared to commit to doing that that um, you know that that amount of travelling uh, for a certain period of time, and and say uh, the managers at Loughborough were well aware of that. But you know, kind of coming three years into it, um, it really was time for me to to get back up and be based in Scotland and be with the family. Of um, the kids were going into school and things like that at that time, and and I knew from my own upbringing that it was my dad having periods working away. That um I didn't want to miss much more of the time, so so that was part of it. Obviously I felt that that what I had learned and developed uh, in terms of my skill set at loughborough, um, and also now that I had something reasonably credible uh, on my CV uh, in British football um you know I was ready to try and look for an opportunity to come and, and get some employment in football in Scotland. so you know, I was fortunate in a sense that there's still an Albion job came available and having played there um, it was an opening for me you know I think if, if uh, opportunities came up at, at other part time clubs you know be it fourth for Athletic or East Fife I possibly wouldn't have got an interview because I wouldn't be known to them yeah. but obviously I was known to the people at Stirling um, which helped me get an interview there's no question about that um, and then really it was it was down to, to what I was able to, to sell them in terms of how I would go about the work at um, Stirling an Albion, and that's how the opportunity came about.
0: And for yourself, uh, how was it being a, a manager at a at a club like Stirling Albion? How did you find the the day to day and and the ups and downs? Uh,
1: the the day to day, week to week stuff was enjoyable. At the same time, it was frustrating. Um, and, and overall, you know, if you look at what it was supposed to be and what it was set out to be. From my perspective, it was a failure. um, And I don't mind admitting that at this point in time. Um, But all in all, it was, again, just another educational experience. So, you know, the the unfortunate thing is you you don't get a a, a rehearsal at these things. You have to go into it uh, and go and do what you think is right at the time. And I have no doubt that I did that. But if um, I got the Stirling Albion job tomorrow, I don't want the Stirling Albion job tomorrow. Can I just say that? (laughs) <laughs> but if I got the Stone Albion job tomorrow, there's no question that I would do things a lot differently to, to how I did it. So, you know, it, it was, you know, I was very, um, again, appreciative of the opportunity that the the board of directors and chairman gave to me. Um, I think there was a, a, at the beginning, at the outset, there was a kind of shared vision of what we'd try and achieve. Um, Unfortunately, I probably felt a bit too secure because of the relative success, I think, that i would had in, in previous roles. And whilst in the back of your mind, you know that, you know, a sacking is always, uh, you know, it's almost a certainty, but it's always a possibility no matter what job that you're in. Um, I, I didn't feel that that was a likelihood at Stirling. I felt that I was going to be given lots of support. I felt that I was going to, to be able to make a real mark on the, on the whole club as I had done, I guess, at at the Strikers.
2: Um,
1: And probably didn't put enough attention, certainly in the early part, to what really should have been the the, the primary objective, and and that was making sure that we just achieved results that helped gain me the credibility to to stay on. So, you know, we we were bottom of League One when I took over. Um, Wasn't able to save the club from relegation, uh, which with the benefit of hindsight, um, I perhaps didn't realise, how important that would be, uh, because obviously the negativity comes about already. Um, that the following year, for different reasons, we weren't able to make the playoffs to gain promotion, which again um, made things much more challenging. And then the start of the the, the next season, um, we had a bit of a mixed start. And when things weren't going quite so well, they, they, they took the opportunity to kind of relieve me of my duties. So it was, um, as I say, it was it was enjoyable. I love, you know. And how coaches do that, um, you know, being in charge of a squad and working with them on a weekly basis, trying to make them better, preparing for each game, um, you know, taking the highs and lows that come with it. Uh, and uh, but at the same time, it was frustrating because I think I had a safe way of approaching things uh, because they're part of my makeup, but also because of the experiences that I'd had. Uh, I tried to implement as best I could in Stirling. Unfortunately, I think the culture within lower league football in Scotland, uh, and in particular I'm talking about the players' group, um, didn't match with the, the way that I wanted to work. Um, mm. you know, I, I was very much about development and improvement and trying to coach the players in the true sense. I think what the players really look for and, and, and are used to and want in that environment, actually, is to be trained. So to come on a Tuesday and, you know, do conditioning work and, and, and play 99 games, um, go on a Thursday and, and, and do set-piece training and, and have a bit of a 5 aside and then just play four four two on a Saturday. And that wasn't what I was about. So, you know, from a learner perspective, as I say, I would do things differently if I had that opportunity again, but, um, you know, at the same time. I went into it and, and I was uh, the person I am and unfortunately it didn't just quite work out but it's certainly, as I say, it, been a learning experience for me.
0: In some shape and form, it was a positive that that manager role at Stirling because it then, I guess, showed you who you were as a, as a coach and, and what you wanted to do in football. So did that mean that you then sort of dived at the opportunity to, to join the Scottish FA then when, when an opportunity arose? Yeah, it did.
1: I, I, um, you know, upon returning to the UK, I looked to to try and further my kind of formal coach education, if you like, uh, by getting on to UEFA courses. So I was given a, a spot on the UEFA A licence, which was great. So I, I did that whilst I was at Loughborough. And then just at the time when I took on the Still and Albion job, um, I fortunately gained a place on the UEFA Pro Licence course. So I'd gone through the A licence and the Pro Licence, with the Scottish FA um, and, you know, in part, I guess, because of uh, how they had seen me working on those courses and what they knew of me at uh, Loughborough uh, Loughborough and then Stirling, gave me the the chance to come on board with the organisation in in what was known then as the Community Development Manager role. So responsible for linking with a number of our affiliated national associations, so the Scottish Youth FA and Scottish Women's Football, etc., um, but also working with the regional staff to try and you know, foster and develop initiatives to, to grow the game at a community level. Um, you know, So the, the National Player Pathway was something that I inputted to um, the structure of coach education and delivery of coach education courses and, and coach development programmes was something. Um, and in, in part, uh, I started working closely with the coach education unit, so helping deliver on... You know, the B licence, uh, A licence, the elite youth licence and, and things like that. Um, and eventually the role morphed into being full-time in coach education, which was terrific. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it because there was a couple of changes there, which, um, you know, the Scottish FA quite rightly has a, a strong reputation for delivering really uh, robust coach education yep. um, and, and, and world-class coach education. And as I say, with the changes, I thought that that was only going to be further enhanced and modernised, perhaps, is is the best way of putting it. And I was going to be a big part of that. Um, But probably just a number of months into that, uh, you know, the way things evolved at the association, there became an opportunity um, to get back into, you know, hands-on coaching uh, as a coach, head coach for the under-16 national team. And, And, you know, whilst I was thoroughly enjoying the coach education aspect, you know, that, that opportunity to go and work with, you know, some of the most talented players that are eligible to play for the country um, and, and all that, that that encompasses was just too good to turn down. Now, you know, again, fortunately, from my perspective, the way that my role is currently, um, it's split across the two. So so I take the, the under-16 national team uh, and, and, and all that, that that encompasses within the programme. Uh, I work with the performance department in sort of coach mentoring, so I work with uh, to support the heads of children's programs at all of our professional academies here in Scotland. but I also still work with the coach education unit in delivering those UEFA A, B uh, elite youth um, courses as well. So, so I'm thoroughly enjoying my job, got tremendous satisfaction out of it. Uh, and as you say, you know the experiences that I've had and, and the timing, I guess, as much as anything else, of my, um, you know, parting ways, with were still Albion, as facilitated me coming on board with the Scottish FA, and, and I've um, I've relished every moment.
0: And with that under sixteen head coach role, um, was it a, a proud moment? Um, although they were opponents, that you, with your Scottish and Australian heritage, got to play against an Australian team.
2: Yeah, it was.
1: It was uh, it was Australian schoolboys. Touring party, so, so they come across, I think, every January. Um, and we were contacted and, and asked if we would uh, like to play a fixture. So, so we've done that now the last two years. Um, and yeah, very proud moment to, to obviously lead uh, a national team in, in the country that I was born in. Um, and, and I suppose, you know, something that a lesson that my dad gave to me very early on in, in things was that, that sentiment has no place in football. Um, but I'd be lying if I didn't say that uh, you know there was there was a little bit of a, a mixed emotion in some ways each time we have lined up against um, against the Australian side. I know it's not the Australian national team, the Joes or likes, but it's still an Australian representatives team, um, albeit the schoolboys uh, side. So so they've been they've been two good experiences. But um, but it was I, I think one of the 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 proudest. I'll probably have to say it is the proudest moment of my career in general was, um, and I told the players that in, in this kind of pre-game talk uh, before I took my first international game. You know, you, you can have all the achievements that you like uh, at club level. Um, and I and well, so proud of, of, of the career that I did have. Um, and even though it is only uh, a youth national team, there, there's something about representing your country that, um, that that club football obviously just can't offer. So, So I'm immensely proud. Um, of, of being a, a Scotland national team coach there's only five of us in the men's game if you take Steve Clark as the national team and yep. Scott Gemmell Billy Stark and Brian McLaughlin as our 21s 19s and 17s respectively and then myself um, so yeah I, I, I do uh, I do take immense pride with that but I, I would like to make it clear that I do um, identify myself as a Scottish born Australian and I've got both <laughs> passports to prove it so. <laughs> So, uh, so my allegiances are, are well and truly split. You know, I give Ange Postecoglou when he was taking the team in the World Cup as much um, support as uh, as I do when when Scotland play and, and trying to gain qualification for the Euros in the World Cup as well. So, i have got two national teams I can support, which has been great because obviously Scotland haven't qualified lately, and, and the Soccerous have uh, have had a good run of qualification success.
0: Well, that's that's great to hear and. Uh makes me as an Australian feel proud and and you're very lucky to have two teams. Uh, for uh, as we uh fin- as we finish up the interview and and I'd sincerely like to thank you for your time uh you know you're helping me in my passion project in in talking to former players and coaches and administrators that have had involvement in the Illawarra and Australia wide and and here in the UK as well. Uh, what about the the core support of, of your family over the journey? Um do you want to speak a little bit a little bit about that because I guess you see it um you've seen it at all different levels about the support that you've received from family members it, it must be crucial in in where you've come from and and where you are now
1: absolutely vital you know i I, I have uh, made the point as clear to them as I possibly can um and again, it's one of these things that you, you probably don't really recognise or appreciate as you're going through the journey and, and as a young person. But now, when you have your own family and, and you're an older uh, person, you, you do look back and, and really acknowledge the, the support that, that your parents did, uh, that provided you. You know, my my mum and, and my dad in particular, obviously, was closer to me through the football journey. Um, gave me all the opportunity and all the support to go and play you know, club football, um, you know, tried to keep me on the straight and narrow as best they possibly could, but my dad never interfered with, with, with coaching unless he was involved directly with the with the team. Um and at the same time, you know, when you start playing representative football and, and it takes place in holiday time and, and for your parents to come away with you, they have to give up, you know, one or two of their four weeks allotted of of holiday time throughout the year and, and yeah. you know that's not to say about the financial investment, etc, etc. Um, the support was invaluable, you know, and and I speak with my parents on a consistent basis. You know, my dad is, is, is as passionate a football man as you can. he's still got strong links with the, the Brisbane Strikers and and tries, I guess, in the background to try and maintain those standards that, that I set within that club. But I still speak to him all the time and, and look for that bit of guidance, look for that bit of advice. So, you know, there was that, and certainly in the formative years, and, and it's still there as a crutch for me now. Uh, I've spoken before about the support that that my wife has given me, you know, through the, the playing career and now transitioning to the, the, the coaching side of things as well. And, and, you know, it's not to be forgotten about, you know, the other people who who I would class as friends who gave me close support, so specifically in the era of war, as I, as I mentioned, um, you know, the Hastings family, Brian Hastings was the chairman of the club. Um, yeah, Him and his his wife put me up in their home for a period of time um helped to try and support me throughout my time um in Wollongong um and even you know further on Brian has, has always been there for a bit of advice and uh and always tried to to keep me um you know well advised about uh, about things happening within the game and as I say I'm really proud to to call you know that family and and, and the two sons uh, Daniel and paul uh, good close friends of mine so you know those people that are closely connected to you our uh, invaluable support as well, and and, and I've um, certainly had the benefit of that right throughout my time.
0: Well, I think on that note, uh, it's a it's a great time to to finish the interview, and and once again, I'm sincerely appreciative of you giving up your time, um, you know, over a couple of hours now and time away from your family to. Uh, go through your football journey, which I've found fascinating and, and totally interested in uh, what you've learnt and, and how you've dealt with various issues on the way. And um, it's been fascinating. And I'd like to thank you sincerely again, Stuart, for, for doing this.
1: You're very welcome, Travis. And uh, you know, keep up the good work on on the Facebook page and the, and the podcast stuff. I've, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um you know, listening and 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 watching to them from a distance here in the UK. So, uh, so thanks for having the time. I thoroughly enjoyed it.
0: Well, thank you. Well, it is here where we finish episode forty-six. Once again, I'd like to sincerely thank Stuart for the time he spent conversing with me over the phone. As always, thank you for listening and downloading this podcast. I am your host, Travis. Goodbye for now.